0: Well, today we're going to be talking about the millennium as we continue our series and looking at the end time events. And uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Revelation 20 this morning. I want to begin by telling a story, though, that uh, about three months ago, Gail and I went with our son, Ben, and daughter, Becca, and their two uh, cute little daughters, Amelia and Emma. We went down to Disney in Florida. And, you know, when you travel with little kids and they haven't really experienced things before, uh, they don't know what to expect. All they know is what their dad or their mom, you know, tells them about it. Like, you know, we're going to go on some rides, it'll be really fun, or we're going to see some shows, Uh, you're going to see some of the Disney characters, you know, that you've seen, and, you know, you may even get to see Anna and Elsa from the movie Frozen, Well, when we got down there to uh, Disney, and we were in Epcot, uh, there's a Norwegian village that's there, and when we were there, there was a a woman standing to the side, and there there was no line there. It didn't look like anything in particular, but she said, you know, if you want to come over this way, you can come in to meet Anna and Elsa. And so we did that, and you can see a picture uh, up here of what happened when the girls saw Anna and Elsa in person. I mean, they were just, uh, not only did they get to meet them, they could talk with them, but the girls were just kind of giggling and didn't know what to say as they encountered these real-life people that they had only seen in pictures. You know, I think about the joy that they had, and I think about their excitement and how this did not disappoint them at all. And I think about that when it comes to things like the millennia and heaven even i mean all we know is what god has told us we we have a lot of questions you know we have things we'd like to know more maybe more information about what this is going to be like or what that's going to be like but our father asks us to trust him he's given us enough that we can go on and we will know just like these girls that when we get there it's not going to disappoint that there will be joy in our hearts when we see Jesus and all that he has prepared for us. So today we're going to talk about the millennium, and I want to uh, show the slide that Pastor Jason's been using to describe what we're looking at. You know, here we are, we are in the church age, this period from the time of Christ's death and resurrection until now. The next event on God's calendar for the end times is the rapture of the church where the believers are caught up to meet with him, and then will begin this seven-year period of tribulation upon the earth, a terrible time, a time when there will be this great rebellion against God, when the Antichrist is made known, and the judgments of God will be poured out upon the earth. And at the end of that time, as those nations gather around Jerusalem and Israel and it looks like everything is going to be lost, our Lord returns in a second coming, coming on the clouds of the heaven with all of the angels with him and with the saints who have uh, been with him in heaven. And then will come after he has defeated his enemies, this time that is known as the millennia. And uh, millennium is just made up of two words in Latin that means a thousand years, a thousand year period, when Christ will reign upon the earth. And after that will come the great white throne judgment. Pastor Jason will talk about that. That's the judgment of the unbelievers. And then the new heaven and the new earth. So today we're going to look at that period called the millennium and see what the scripture has to say about it. Now, this is one of the passages that um, there is some controversy, you might say, in that uh, believers hold different views of the millennium. What's that going to be like? Uh, How long will it last? All of these things. And there are three main views with a lot of variations on them, but I'm going to highlight just briefly the three main views. The first is premillennialism. And premillennialists believe that after the second coming, Christ is literally going to reign from Jerusalem over the whole earth for a thousand years. He will come, he will establish his kingdom upon the earth, and those promises in the Old Testament that have yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled during that time. This was the view of the early church for the first 300 years and and, uh, continuing on through that time, there were those who held to it. And it is the view of many evangelicals today, a millennial, premillennial view. That's what I hold to. That's what Pastor Jason holds to. And I'll share with you why as we go through the message this morning. A second view is amillennialism. And amillennialism believes that there will be no future millennium, that the millennium is now. It's the church age, and they understand that not as a literal thousand years, but they understand it uh, spiritually as an indefinite period of time, and that Christ is reigning now through his church. And so what an amillennialist looks for is the return of Christ and then going right into the new heaven and the new earth. And that is the uh, view that began in the fourth century with a man named Ticonius. Augustine held to that view, and for about 1,200 years, it was the dominant view in the church, including several of the reformers, like Martin Luther or John Calvin were amillennialists. The third view is postmillennialism. And postmillennialism, Believes that Christ is going to return after the millennium. In their view, they see the world and the gospel advancing and Christianity advancing to encompass the whole earth, which will um, bring in this thousand year period or millennial period of righteousness and prosperity upon the earth. It's a very optimistic view of the advance of the gospel and the transformation that could take place in the world through that. Uh, This was the view of many in the 1700s and 1800s, including a noted theologian, Jonathan Edwards held to this view. Charles Finney did, and others as well. And and I say that because when you think about, here are three different views of what the millennium is going to be like or how long it'll last or how it's going to play out. Um, where there are exceptional people who have held to each of those different views. But for post-millennialism, the previous century in which we had two world wars and a number of police actions showed that the world indeed is not getting better. And it really hurt. There aren't as many people who hold to a post-millennial view anymore because of what has happened in our world. So which view is correct, and how do you decide? Well, we go to the Scriptures, and we take a look at it, as these individuals have done, and we make up our mind based on what the text has to say. And today we're going to be looking at Revelation 20, and we'll talk about the millennium, and as I said, I'll share with you why I hold to a premillennial position. There are three main events that will take place during the millennium. And the first one is the binding of Satan. The scripture says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any anymore until the thousand years were ended and after that he must be set free for a short time so here you have this initial binding of satan that occurs at the beginning of the millennial period the binding of satan seems to be total not just a reduction of his activity You have this angel who comes down and who takes him captive and locks him and seals him in this prison. You have that described in in a pretty uh, dramatic detail here as that takes place. The one who is known as the dragon or the serpent or the devil or Satan is bound for a thousand years. Now, this is an argument against amillennialism the position that says that satan is bound in this present age is that really what the scripture teaches do we really see satan bound now amillennialism believes that satan was bound when christ defeated him at the cross and rose again but when you look at the scriptures you see verses like this like second corinthians 4 verses 3 to 4 you can put those up for me. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has minded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So you see, um, in this binding of Satan, he really is still active and at work in our world, and he is the one who is keeping many from coming to know Christ because he has blinded their eyes. In Ephesians 2.2, 2, the Scripture says that Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In this present age, he is called the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, in those who are disobedient. Thirdly, in Ephesians 6.11, We are told that we are to put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. He is our adversary. He is active in this world. And we have an enemy who wants to see us stumble and fall. And finally, in 1 Peter 5, 8, the scripture says, "'Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour.'" I mean, that certainly doesn't seem like he is bound. He is limited in what he can do. He can do no more than God allows. He was defeated at the cross, his doom is sure, but he is still active and at work in this present church age in which we are living. The scripture says during the millennium that's going to be different. He is going to be bound. He is going to be out of the scene, if you will, for that thousand years along with the demonic host that he commands. And how different that will be in our world. But then it says he's going to be released at the end for a short time. Now, why is that? Why, after a thousand years of Christ reigning and there being this period of righteousness, this period of security and joy over the whole earth, why will Satan be released at the end and lead another rebellion? Well, I think at least one of the reasons for that is to show us that the problem of sin is not in society It's not in our environment. The problem of sin is not in the way that you or I were raised or anything like that. The problem of sin is in us. It is in us. It's our heart that needs to be changed. It is we who are sinners from the time of our birth who need a Savior. And until we come to know Christ and surrender our life to him, we're not going to experience the change that he can bring. And so here in that millennial period, there will be people that are born, there'll be families, you know, and kids that'll grow up, and there'll be people who will follow along with what Jesus has done, but in their heart, they are still rebelling against him. And when it comes to the end, when Satan is released for that short time, there will be those who will join with him in this final rebellion. And once and for all, Satan will be defeated and ended. Well, secondly, the, what we see in this millennial period is the reign of Christ and the saints who will reign with him. And we see that in verses 4 to 6. The scripture says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. And they had not worshipped the beast or its image, and they had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. And blessed are and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And what a fantastic description this is of a time when Christ will establish his kingdom and he will reign over the whole earth. And he tells us that we who are believers who have joined with him will share in that reign. Now, we don't know all of what that means. We don't know all of how that is going to look like in that time period. But he tells us that we will have responsibilities and we will have authority that is given from Christ to reign with him over the whole earth. Who is going to enter the millennial kingdom? Well, when Christ returns in that second coming and His judgment and He defeats all His enemies, those who have come to know Christ in, the millenn- in that uh, tribulation period will enter into this millennial kingdom. All of Israel who has come to know the Lord now will enter into that millennial period and they will repopulate the earth. Believers who had been martyred during the tribulation will come to life and they will reign with Christ. Believers who have returned from heaven with Christ, when he comes back, will also reign with him in his kingdom. The unbelieving dead will not come to life until the end of the thousand years to face Christ at the great white throne judgment. What will life be like during the millennium? Well, there are a number of things that The Old Testament helps us in understanding this, a number of things that are pictured there. For example, the millennium will be a period of unparalleled peace and security. In this passage from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, it says, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, when you think of the trillions of dollars that nations spend a day on defense... All that money that's put into building, you know, missiles and tanks and weapons of destruction, where it's not needed, where nations instead will put those resources toward that which is good and productive in that time of peace. It'll be amazing. And nations coming to hear the Lord and to hear what he has to say in his word. And he will come and he will judge. Disputes between nations, he will settle those kind of issues himself. You know this last part of that quote from Isaiah, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks? That's actually uh, something that is carved on one of the walls of the United Nations. And if you see this particular uh, wall here, I mean, that's a hope that the nations have. That one day there would be that kind of peace. But it's not going to be the United Nations. It's not going to be man that's going to bring this in and establish it. It is the Lord himself who will establish that reign of peace over all the earth. What else will it be like in the millennial period? Well, it will be a period of ecological harmony. You look at this passage in Isaiah 11. It's just amazing. When he tells us that the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. And they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I can't answer all the questions about that. But there is going to be this great change that's going to be taking place in our world, even in terms of our environment, even in terms of that kind of sense of security and well-being. And you think about in our world today where we have so many that are concerned about what's happening to our environment, what's happening to the resource that we have and the squandering of resources or the misuse of resources. And it seems like in this world, every solution that we come up with has a downside. You know, like one example is how, you know... um, There's this movement away from fossil fuels towards, say, electric vehicles or electric cars and transportation as being a way to have a more greener world. And yet, in order to build all those electric cars and all those batteries that are needed, it's going to take an awful lot of mining and often open pit mining to find those resources of lithium or nickel or cadmium or other minerals that we need. And it's like, well, on the one side, we're doing something to be more green. And on the other side, we're doing stuff that continues to despoil the earth. Every solution we come up with tends to have some downside to it. But in this age, when Christ reigns and with the wisdom that he gives to man and to those that he has placed in authority, there are going to be great changes And it's going to go back more to what it was like as God intended the earth to be. It will be a period of harmony, not only with people, but with nature. Thirdly, lifespans will be extended. In Isaiah 65, verses 20 to 25, we read this. That never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. And before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Why do we think this applies to the millennium? Well, when it talks about life and death, certainly that's not in heaven. I mean, in heaven, when we go to be with Jesus, there'll be no more sickness or suffering or death. But even in that millennial period, there will still be challenges and things that people will face in this life. And what it is describing here, though, is this extension of lifespans that will take place. A number of years ago, Time magazine on its cover had a picture of, of a baby on the cover and it said, will this child live to be 120? Because as medical advances are made, as we learn more about genetics, as we learn more about treating specific diseases, um, many believe that we'll be able to solve even the problem of cancer or be able to treat it more effectively. And if that were to happen, people would live longer. And yet here we have in the Scripture these statements talking about a time when Christ shall reign, where indeed lifespans will be extended. And can you imagine the medical advances that could take place when the knowledge of the Lord fills the earth and where we are listening to Him And his guidance. And we see all of these things change before our very eyes. And finally, Christ will reign over all the earth. In Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, a passage that is very familiar to us, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That's a text that's very familiar to us, and we usually think of that at Christmas time. And we think of his first coming, that this child was born to us, this son that was given, Jesus, with all these wonderful names. We have seen that fulfilled. We have not seen the second part of that verse yet, that the government would rest upon his shoulders. That is still to come, and that will be fulfilled in that time of the millennium. Why will there be a millennium? Well, the millennium will be an open manifestation to the world of what it would have been like if we had listened to the Lord in this age. If we had only listened, if we had only followed what he taught, if we had only seen the nations come to Christ and turn in repentance, if we had seen more and more individuals who came to know Christ and to begin to live as God teaches we would experience some of these things. All of that will be true in the millennium. It will show the world and it will show the heavenlies. It will show Satan and the demons what the world could have been like if we had followed Jesus. And secondly, the millennium will be the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. One of the differences between those who hold to a premillennial view versus an amillennial view is how we understand the Old Testament and the place of Israel. And the question is, does Israel have a place in the history, a future still? And premillennialists believe that it does. And that these promises that were given in the Old Testament still need to be fulfilled. It's the way we read the Scripture, that those promises that speak of a kingdom, of one who will sit upon David's throne, are still true and will be fulfilled in this millennial age. Amillennialists believe that those promises given to Israel were forfeited by their disobedience and their rejection of Him. And so they do not see a place specifically for Israel in the future. And that is a distinction between those two views. But look at these promises that were made. For example, in 2 Samuel 7:16, um, God said to David, He said, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David was told that there would be one who would sit upon his throne who would reign forever. In Ezekiel 34, the scripture said, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them, and he will tend them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, Ezekiel wrote these words, and this is after David had lived, and it speaks not of... David, who once was the king, but it speaks of his greater son, the Messiah, who would come and who would be that shepherd of his people. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. And God says, I have spoken. It will stand. And then one more. In Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and following, another great Christmas text. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be our peace. You know, as I studied these millennial texts uh, in preparation for this message, the one thing that jumped out to me more than any other time was how many of the Christmas texts that we use regarding his first coming have in it these promises to relate to his second coming and the millennial kingdom. Because again, here it speaks about a a child. One who's going to come. One who comes, whose name is the Ancient of Days, if you will. And who's going to stand and shepherd his flock. Who is going to be a ruler over his people. Who comes out of the line of Judah. And who is that one? It is Jesus. It's Jesus who comes as the Messiah. Whose greatness will extend to the ends of the earth and whose kingdom will never end. He will be our peace. What a wonderful promise that is. And how interesting that is, that in these passages, it speaks of both first and second coming, what is yet to come. And as sure as Jesus came the first time, he will come again to establish his kingdom upon the earth. These verses are meant to fill our hearts with hope as we look forward to that day. And then the third major event in the millennium is Satan's ultimate doom. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And in number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, at the end of the millennium, satan will be released for a short time and it is hard to even imagine how after this reign of christ with all of the good things that have happened in this present world it's hard to believe that there will be this major rebellion that will take place at the end but it is there it is foretold in scripture It is the battle of Gog and Magog that's found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's described there that Israel will be dwelling in peace and security, and then these enemies will come up against them. And at this time, Christ will finally destroy all of his enemies. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire to be tormented. Forever. It is a very graphic description of what hell is like. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In many ways, this passage is an argument for eternal punishment and why that is necessary why ultimately sin and death and satan need to be cast into the lake of fire banished gone forever so that those who enjoy the beauty of eternity with christ will live in a place that is secure in a place where there is worship of the living god where there is beauty there is joy there is no more suffering no more pain no more sickness no more death All of those things have passed away. And instead, we we will be there with those who have gone before us in the Lord. We'll be reunited with loved ones. We will enjoy the beauty of that place and the beauty of our risen Lord. The Bible doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know about the millennium or about heaven. We see the same thing there. But just as the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, God has given us glimpses. In 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, the scripture says, However, however, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. We don't know all that he's going to do in those days. But we have this glimpses, and the things that he has shown us are indeed pretty good. And I think about those two little granddaughters of ours who got to meet some people that they never thought that they would, and the joy that was on their faces, and how they were almost speechless in not being able to respond when Anna and Elsa were talking to them. I think about for us, when we come to that place where we are with the Lord forever and we see His beauty and we stand in His presence, we will be in awe of Him. And we too will be speechless for a time. And we will see all that He has prepared that just blows our imagination, that shows us glimpses of what could have been and now we see revealed because of Christ, who is our Lord and Savior and our King. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. He said this. He said, at the present time, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. I mean, think of that. Lewis is talking about how our real home is there with Christ in heaven, and at present, we're on this side, the wrong side of the door. And we discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. Amen. 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 And how do we get in? It's only through Christ. It's only through coming to him and acknowledging that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we ask him to forgive us our sins. We ask him to come into our life, to change our heart, to make us a new creature in Christ. And to empower us to live for him and to fit us for heaven when one day he will come again. And he will take us to be with him and we will be with the Lord forever. God willing we shall get in. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these wonderful promises. And we wait with expectancy for that day when you will return and you will take us to be with you. And Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with a sense of urgency as we seek to share the gospel, to see as many people come to know Christ as can. And today, if you are watching online, or if you are here in our service and you do not know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, today could be the day when you say to him, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me my sins and be my Savior and Lord. I want to live with you. I want to know you better. Dear Jesus, would you receive me? And Father, I thank you that you will For all who come to you, you will not cast out. Thank you for the hope that we have because of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Well, would you stand as we close our service today with this benediction. This is from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you, May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here. And I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church, you can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I wanna thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week and we will look forward to seeing you soon.